This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of metatarsal fractures from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Metatarsal fractures are among the most common injuries of the foot that may occur due to trauma or repetitive microstress. Diagnosis is made with plain radiographs of the foot. Treatment may be non-operative or operative depending on the specific metatarsal involved, number of metatarsals involved, and fracture displacement. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the fifth metatarsal is most commonly fractured in adults. The first metatarsal is most commonly fractured in children less than four years old. Peak incidence is between the second and fifth decades of life, and keep in mind that third metatarsal fractures rarely occur in isolation. 68% of third metatarsal fractures are associated with fracture of the second or fourth metatarsal. With respect to mechanism of metatarsal fractures, they can be secondary to a direct crush injury, which may have significant associated soft tissue injury, or from an indirect mechanism, which is more common, and this occurs with the forefoot fixed and the hind foot or leg rotating. Associated conditions with metatarsal fractures include Lisfranc injuries and stress fractures. Keep in mind that Lisfranc equivalent injuries are seen with multiple proximal metatarsal fractures. In the setting of a stress fracture, consider metabolic evaluation for a fragility fracture. Also look for an associated foot deformity, and keep in mind that stress fractures are seen at the base of the second metatarsal in ballet dancers, and these patients may have a history of amenorrhea. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about osteology, muscles, ligaments, blood supply, and biomechanics. With respect to osteology, the shape and function of the metatarsals is similar to the metacarpals of the hand. The first metatarsal has plantar crista that articulates with the sesamoids. The first metatarsal is the widest and the shortest and bears 30 to 50% of the weight during gait. The second metatarsal is the longest and is the most common location of a stress fracture. As far as muscles, there must be muscular balance between the extrinsic and intrinsic muscles. The extrinsics include the extensor digitorum longus, or EDL, and the flexor digitorum longus, or FDL. The intrinsics include the interossei and the lumbricals. For more information about the layers of the plantar foot, look out for the podcast episode about layers of the plantar foot or visit orthobullets.com to review the topic. As far as ligaments, metatarsals have dense proximal and distal ligamentous attachments. The second through fifth metatarsals have distal intermetatarsal ligaments that maintain length and alignment with isolated fractures. These are implicated in the formation of interdigital or Morton's neuromas. Remember that multiple metatarsal fractures lose the stability of intermetatarsal ligaments, leading to increased displacement. As far as the blood supply to the metatarsals, this comes from the dorsal and plantar metatarsal arteries. With respect to biomechanics, be sure to listen to the podcast episode about foot anatomy and biomechanics or review the topic on orthobullets.com. As far as classification of metatarsal fractures, this is descriptive and should include location, fracture pattern, displacement, angulation, and articular involvement. As far as presentation of metatarsal fractures, make sure to look for antecedent pain when suspicious for a stress fracture. As far as symptoms, patients may have pain and inability to bear weight. Physical exam should involve inspection, motion assessment, and neurovascular evaluation. Inspection should look for foot alignment, such as neutral, cavo varus, or plano valgus. 
focal areas or diffuse areas of tenderness, and careful soft tissue evaluation with crush or high-energy injuries. As far as the motion assessment, evaluate for overlapping or malrotation with motion. Finally, neurovascular evaluation should involve SEMS-Weinstein monofilament testing if you're suspicious for peripheral neuropathy. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs that are required include the AP, lateral, and oblique views of the foot. Optional views include contralateral foot views and stress or weight-bearing radiographs. A CT is not routinely obtained, but may be of use in periarticular injuries or to rule out Lisfranc injury. An MRI or a bone scan is useful in detection of occult or stress fractures. Treatment of metatarsal fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes a stiff-soled shoe or walking boot with weight-bearing is tolerated. This is indicated for non-displaced fractures of the first metatarsal, second through fourth central metatarsals that have isolated fractures, or non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures. Non-operative management is also indicated for stress fractures, and keep in mind that the second metatarsal is the most common stress fracture. Make sure to look for metabolic bone disease and evaluate for cablevarus foot with recurrent stress fractures. Operative options include percutaneous versus open reduction and internal fixation. This is indicated for open fractures, first metatarsal fractures, and central metatarsal fractures. Percutaneous versus open reduction and fixation in the setting of a first metatarsal fracture is indicated for fractures with any displacement, as there is no intermetatarsal ligament support and because the first metatarsal takes on 30 to 50% of weight bearing with gait. Percutaneous versus open reduction and fixation in the setting of central metatarsal fractures is indicated when there's a sagittal plane deformity more than 10 degrees, greater than 4 millimeters of translation, and multiple fractures. As far as surgical techniques, you can use antegrade or retrograde pinning techniques, lag screws or mini fragment plates in length unstable fracture patterns, and make sure to maintain proper length to minimize the risk of transfer metatarsalgia. As far as outcomes, there is limited information available in the literature regarding outcomes. The major complication to mention includes malunion, which may lead to transfer metatarsalgia or plantar keratosis. Make sure to treat malunions with osteotomy to correct the deformity. As far as the prognosis of metatarsal fractures, the majority of isolated metatarsal fractures heal with conservative management. And keep in mind that malunion may lead to transfer metatarsalgia. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 25-year-old ballerina complains of right forefoot pain of insidious onset two months after starting practice for a major performance. On initial examination, there's tenderness along the shaft of the second metatarsal. She is not able to perform a single leg heel rise. Initial radiographs show essentially a normal radiograph of the right foot. Radiographs taken two weeks later show marked callus formation. What is the next best step? And the choices are one, biopsy, two, observation, three, protected weight bearing, four, MRI, and five, bone scan. The correct answer to this question is three, protected weight-bearing. So the patient in the question stem has a right second metatarsal shaft stress fracture. These fractures will heal if the fracture site is stabilized. Protected weight-bearing will provide stability and minimize pain. 
To quickly review, stress fractures arise when there is a disruption of the balance between accumulation of microdamage and bone repair. Stress fractures occur in the watershed areas where there is poor blood supply and areas of high stress. Pain is typically insidious and occurs over two to three weeks and may correlate with a change in training habits. Radiographs typically lag behind clinical symptoms by weeks. Repeat radiographs two weeks later may reveal the fracture. Schindel et al. reviewed stress fractures about the tibia, foot, and ankle. They recommend elucidating a history including endocrinopathies, autoimmune and eating disorders, depression, malabsorption, bariatric surgery, and dietary history. Management depends on the fracture location. High-risk fractures, such as in the anterior tibia, navicular, proximal fifth metatarsal, and medial malleolus, may require surgery in high-level athletes who need to return to sport early. Welk et al. reviewed stress fractures of the foot. They state that of metatarsal fractures, the second and third metatarsals are most commonly involved. Fractures of the second metatarsal are often seen in ballet dancers because of extreme plantar flexion. Other risks include prominent second metatarsal, pronated foot, and poor ankle plantar flexion with compensation at the metatarsal cuneiform joint. Moving on to the next question. A 26-year-old female presents to the office with complaints of right foot pain, worse with activity. She states that she has always been a runner to stay healthy, but recently increased her miles per day as she prepares for her marathon. Weight-bearing radiographs were obtained and are unremarkable. Physical examination demonstrates minimal swelling and diffuse tenderness over the second metatarsal. What would be the next best step? And the choices are 1. Non-weight-bearing and placement into a cast and reevaluate in 3-4 to four weeks. 2. Technetium 99 bone scan. 3. CT of the foot. 4. Limit miles per day and reevaluate in 2-3 to three weeks. And 5. MRI of the foot. The correct answer to this question is 4. Limit miles per day and reevaluate in 2-3 to three weeks. So this female has a presentation suspicious for a stress fracture over her second metatarsal due to her recent increase in training and an increase in her miles per day. Initial treatment involves limiting her miles per day and reevaluating in two to three weeks. To quickly review, metatarsal stress fractures are relatively common and are most frequent in the second and third metatarsal, but can also be seen in the fifth metatarsal. High-risk populations include runners, military recruits, ballet dancers, basketball players, or those with a recent increase in activity or training. Distal second metatarsal stress fractures are the most common due to the high bending and shear forces. Further risk factors include a long second metatarsal, hypermobile first ray, and women. Radiographs may be negative or show callus formation. Advanced imaging of a bone scan or MRI can be obtained to confirm the diagnosis in cases of negative radiographs. Initial treatment usually involves activity modification with a gradual return to sport over six to eight weeks when asymptomatic. Use of a walking boot, cast, or limiting weight bearing can be used in patients whose symptoms don't resolve with activity modification or cannot comply with the recommendations. Moving on to the next question. A 19-year-old cross-country runner complains of three months of foot pain with running. Radiographs show a diaphyseal stress fracture of the third metatarsal with obvious callus formation and good alignment of the bone. What is the most appropriate next step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Open reduction internal fixation. 2. Excisional biopsy. 
three, continue running with a molded orthotic. Four, protected weight bearing with crutches with slow return to running. And five, percutaneous Kirshner wire fixation. The correct answer to this question is four, protected weight bearing with crutches with slow return to running. So the radiographs described show a diaphyseal stress fracture of the third metatarsal with obvious callus formation and good alignment of the bone. These are coined a March fracture and occur in the second, third, and fourth metatarsals, with second being the most common. The literature indicates that a technetium-99 bone scan is the most useful diagnostic imaging modality, although CT and MRI can also be used. Treatment of this consists of four to six weeks of rest with gradual return to pre-injury activity level. The other treatments are not appropriate for this scenario. And moving on to the final question, a 26-year-old professional ballet dancer presents with insidious onset of right midfoot pain, which began six months ago. She has no history of ankle or foot trauma, and medical history is significant only for delayed menarche. Radiographs reveal a chronic stress reaction at the base of the second metatarsal. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Lisfranc joint injury, 2. Cuneiform stress fracture, 3. Second metatarsal base stress fracture, 4. Plantar fascia strain, and 5. First metatarsal base stress fracture. The correct answer to this question is 3. Second metatarsal base stress fracture. So stress fractures in ballet dancers occur most frequently at the second metatarsal base. The radiograph described demonstrates a chronic stress reaction at the base of the second metatarsal, typical of these injuries, when delayed on presentation. MRI can be obtained to help confirm the diagnosis. O'Malley et al. identified 51 professional dancers, or 64 fractures, who sustained a stress fracture at the base of the second metatarsal. Delayed menarche was common in those affected, and the usual location of the fracture was at the proximal metaphyseal diaphyseal junction of the second metatarsal. Treatment consisted of a short leg walking cast for six patients and a wooden shoe and symptomatic treatment for the remainder. The patients returned to performance at an average of 6.2 weeks following diagnosis, with 14% reporting continued pain with dancing. No patients required bone grafting for persistent symptoms. That's all for this review about metatarsal fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.